Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. My guest this week is my friend Ethan, at ESJewett on Twitter. He asked me not to relate his sordid past, which is good, because if his past is sordid, I don't know about it. For our purposes, it's relevant that Ethan studied philosophy, works as a developer, and isn't heavily invested in the sci-fi and fantasy book reviewing blog and Twitter sphere. One of my goals with this podcast is to hear from people who aren't talking about books in places where I usually encounter them. This episode will have the first part of my discussion with Ethan, including discussions of identity, the gender pronouns in ancillary justice, and their impact on our reading of romantic relationships and other social signifiers. Afterwards, I have a brief programming note, and then I'll close with a book I encountered a long time ago at an underground library. All right, so we are going to talk this evening about Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie, which won every award last year because it was an awesome, awesome book. I think it was actually published in 2013, but won all the awards in 2014. You read this, you said, a few months ago? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly when. I think uh, probably in the uh, October-November time frame okay. of 2014. And before we jump into the book, do you read very many books at all? Do you read primarily <laughs> sci-fi fantasy? Do you read outside of sci-fi fantasy? What's your general reading habits? Uh, what's on my bookshelf right now? Yeah, I don't read that many books at the moment. A lot of what I do read is probably sci-fi fantasy, some urban fantasy type stuff. Um, a fair amount of nonfiction, actually, that's related to what I do professionally. So, Okay. Spoilers. That'll be my disclaimer at the beginning. It's been out for a long time. It won a lot of awards. You should have read <laughs> if it. you haven't read it by now, then. <laughs> if you haven't read it by now, go read it and then come back and listen to this. There's an obvious place to start with Ancillary Justice, but before we do, I am curious how you refer to or think of the protagonist. Which protagonist? <laughs> Breck, I assume. I know that there are also people who have referred to her as Justice of Torin, one asks. Right. She has been known to refer to herself that way. Yes. The obvious, I guess, undercurrent behind that question is, do I think of her as a man or a woman, I suppose? Um, and I, I I think of her as, as a woman, actually. And I don't know, she's a very interesting character. I think there's a lot to get into there, actually, around what Anne Leckie's kind of doing with uh, ancillary justice. Then let's jump in there. Let's set aside the she, her. For, for those who have not read the book, the, the obvious place that most people begin is that all of the characters are referred to with female pronouns throughout the book. She and her are used everywhere. But let's, let's set that aside for a second. I think there's interesting stuff going on there. Breck is an ancillary. Ancillaries have a body, and they are controlled by a ship's artificial intelligence. So the ship is a ship, and also the, I believe, hundreds is about the scale of different ancillaries that they control, dead bodies who've been sort of taken over. Right. The the ship is a collection of, I guess, asks, which are collections of individuals, all of which are theoretically, I guess, controlled by the artificial intelligence of the ship. But it's more of a, seems like more of a community of intelligences, actually. Yes. Yeah, so the the relationship between all of the pieces of a, of a ship is not exactly clear, but it thinks of itself as each piece of it is it's is a body that is part of its body kind of. And then the ship itself, um, the physical ship is actually is part of its body as well. So, interesting setup. Mhm. In parts of the book Breck is remembering being Justice of Torin one ask that is one member of an ask that is a member of the ship Justice of Torin, And in other parts of the book, Breck is 
the only remaining aspect of Justice of Torin, and so is singular instead of being plural, right? As in many of the other parts of the book. And you said that there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. What what do you find particularly interesting about those either of those identities? Well, I so I took a class in in college, um, which seems like quite a lot quite a while ago. Um, there was essentially a philosophy of mind class that dealt with um, some questions like what this book seems to deal with around what is it like to be an artificial intelligence or what is it like to be a different type of intelligence. And and one way of approaching those types of questions was a literary approach where you essentially wrote a book that tried to put the reader into the shoes of a different type of intelligence. So a famous one is is actually about bees. Um, you know, kind of what is it like to be a bee in a beehive? Very interesting. I would not say it's great literature, which is probably why one of the best achievements of this book, I think, is that it's a fantastic book while it's doing these very interesting kind of experimental things, from my point of view, that are essentially a philosophy of mind exercise. What is it like to be an artificial intelligence? And I think something very interesting is happening here where a lot of artificial intelligence theorists are very interested in like, how does it happen? Um, technically, what's going on? What does that mean for the way that the artificial intelligence experiences itself? And Lucky is kind of just like, well, forget all that crap. Like, <laughs> let's just say that it is. And what what is it like? So that's that's pretty interesting. It also doesn't. So in some ways, the book just does away with a lot of the questions about like how did this happen and and like what's the technical mechanism for this. But in other ways, it actually directly addresses difficulties that other authors sort of come up with a technical explanation to kind of explain away. So like, for example, Orson Scott Carr and artificial intelligence in the, the sequel to the Ender's Game um, deals with how does an artificial intelligence that has bodies that are separated by large distances deal with the communications delay by simply inventing a technology that makes, gets rid of the communications delay. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Ancillary Justice, like this is a central problem for these types of intelligences. And, you know, spoiler alert, but is a central problem for the intelligence that is actually in charge of the Raj, the empire that the Justice of Torn is in service to. So the question of how that kind of the communication delay between a ship and an ancillary that's on the surface of a planet versus ships in different systems, and it's really interesting how that kind of plays out. Yeah, I agree. And a thing that jumped out at me, there is a passage, I think relatively early on, where one of the humans talking to, I think Justice of Torrin says something like, ships have feelings. And Justice of Torrin says, yes, of course ships have feelings. Otherwise, how would you make really minor decisions that you can't have sort of a decision tree that affects everything? And so ships have to be given mm-hmm. feelings in order, to make, in order to make all of the day-to-day minutia of decisions, which seems to me especially given, and I read only pop, neuropsychology so that's the best kind of neuropsychology this is all taken with a grain (laughs) of sand but it seems to me that that's another really interesting way of sort of one of the central challenges of an artificial intelligence is that you probably need to not have long forking decision trees for everything Um, i will bow to your increased philosophical and computer science knowledge (laughs) (laughs) well yeah, and I'm, and it's interesting how the question, how that particular question is dealt with. For example, like that's a that's a very interesting question in artificial intelligence research and philosophy of mind, but it's not really important to the plot of the book, and so it's sort of it's sort of dealt with in a way that's in some sense satisfying, but is um you know it's not dwelt on for an overly long period of time. 
let's say. That is and, the, the mechanics of feelings, you're saying, or not? Yeah, or how, and the mechanics of the way a ship makes decisions. I mean, this right. we, we get to know a ship pretty well, and it makes decisions essentially like a person does in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. A lot more data at its disposal, um, but otherwise pretty similar. Another interesting aspect of that is actually how Lecky brings in the concept of like, why does a what's an artificial intelligence like point of existence kind of? Because everybody sort of has to have a reason for living, basically. And before Anander Mayanai builds the Radich, there are other artificial intelligences. And sort of historically, it seems like what tended to happen is these ships were very, very attached to their captains, that the captain was essentially the reason the ship existed. And when the captain died, um, the ships went crazy. And there's this allusion to the fact that Anander Manai came up with a different reason for existence for these ships, which I assume has something to do with their names. So there are justices, there are mercies, and there are swords. My assumption, kind of, although there's probably not much to back this up in the book, is that the purpose of justices is to spread justice throughout the universe or something like that. And that seems to kind of fit with their with their roles as well. Yeah, the justices, I think, are the smallest of the ships. No, they're the largest, are I they, think. Is, is that it? They're, they're, the, they're the troop carriers. They're okay. enormous, and they have thousands and thousands and thousands of ancillaries. Right. Um, all of which are in storage until they actually decide they need to take over a planet. Mm-hmm. And then the swords are the middle-sized ones that are more, I guess, combat-oriented. And then the mercies are the small ones. Okay, yeah. I don't remember getting a sense of what the purpose of the ships were. And I seem to remember that identifying with the captain is still a really important element for the ships. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it totally, it totally is. But it's also, and it's also, it's always, it seems like it's a... Um, sort of a very treacherous point, the transition between captains. Mm-hmm. But the but the ships now have a, have some kind of like overarching allegiance or something like that, either to Manai or to something else. And um, so they're able to sort of bridge that gap somehow. Okay. This is really interesting because I had picked up on the the artificial intelligence being not human and ways in which Lecky was making in particular Justice of Torin, when when it was the ship and the collection of artificial intelligences, making them mm-hmm. alien and not human, but I had not really picked up on kind of problems in contemporary AI and philosophy of mind. So that's that's really interesting. Have you read uh, C.J. Sherry's Foreigner series? I have not, no. Okay. I'm woefully behind on my sci-fi. <laughs> These were... Goodness, it's been a while since I've read them. But but it's another case of humans interacting with an alien intelligence that doesn't really process emotions in the way that we process emotions. Um, and I saw some strong links there. Mm-hmm. Jaron, of course, another. Yes. Yes. And the Shapali aliens, very much uh, a very different social structure and the ways in which the author kind of communicates and conveys that this is a very different social structure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that uh, there, there are tons of interesting questions in this in this book, and it's just the book doesn't even attempt to address all of them, and, I, and it seems like that's a strength rather than a weakness. I'm, I'm actually a little worried that in the follow-on novels the, there will be an attempt to address all these questions, and, and in some sense that would probably ruin what, what's going on in, some, in this book, which is that it asks a lot of questions that it doesn't answer. But Ancillary Sword, I think, did okay in that respect. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, 
I, I mostly agree with you that a strength is asking the questions and that in many ways answering those questions, trying to provide answers can be a risky business. Mm-hmm. But but it's it not going to be an open-ended series. The plan is a trilogy, and as far as I know, that's that's still the plan. So okay. well. hopefully she will not try to answer every question in Ancillary Mercy, Mercy because I think that would get very, very difficult. Yeah. I think that's true, and I think that it seems pretty clear that she has a very good handle on what she's trying to do here. So yes. I would, I would, I kind of rest assured that it's going to be handled well. Yeah. I, I definitely have a lot of faith in Anne Leckie, the author. I'm, I'm really impressed after both ancillary justice and ancillary sword, but even just after ancillary justice, I'm really impressed with what she's doing and that she knows what she's doing. Yeah. It's just like not being a writer myself in the same way. I just can't imagine that the level of restraint <laughs> Yeah, and, and the amount of excising she must have done from from this novel, because I, I assume that there was a lot of explanatory stuff in there that just got taken out, and I mean for the betterment of the book, probably. That rings very accurate. Yeah. So let's turn to pronouns because everybody in the book is she, and Breck makes a point <laughs> of she and using she as the pronoun even when addressing characters that Breck figures based on other signifiers are probably male. And the explanation right. is that the Ratch language does not use gendered pronouns. Right. And while while um, human Ratch apparently can differentiate gender fairly well, Breck is extremely confused about what gender any particular person is at any given time. Yes. Uh, which is kind of interesting that this, like, this super intelligent AI can't figure that out. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So the question then is why? And I, before we get to that question, how long did it take you to stop caring and trying to parse the gender of characters? Or did you continue to care and try to parse the gender of characters throughout? And if you did, was that an all yeah. a rewarding experience? So I definitely did continue to sort of... Well, basically, I, I kind of slotted everybody into a gender um, along the way eventually. At some point, I, stopped, I kind of stopped worrying about it, but it definitely happened anyway. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, obviously, it says something about the way that I read books, um, and I assume that's probably the case for most people. So I had, I think, Breck as a woman. I had uh, Sivarden, the kind of secondary main character, I mm-hmm. think, as a man. Minai, so Skiat, on I had as a woman, Skiat I had as a woman, Minai I had as not really anything, I guess. Okay. <laughs> um, which is kind of, I, I guess I couldn't really place Minai. I mean, she reproduces by cloning, apparently, so it doesn't really matter what gender she is. Right. So, anyway, but it was, all of that it was very fluid, and in fact, I think changed, um, over the course of the book, for me, at least, I think Sivarden, probably, I think I started out thinking of her as female and eventually switched over to male. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, it was an interesting experience, that's for sure. How about you? I, I tweeted at about page 200, which is a little over halfway through the book, that I have just stopped caring and trying to figure it out. And at that point, I just, I read she everywhere, and I didn't bother trying to figure out the genders. I think I read Sivarden as male, and I think early on 
there's the lieutenant to whom Justice of Torin one asks is extremely attached, and the person that she has the conversations with, Skiat. Skiat is the one that An is associated with, kind of. Right. And there is a sense that that's, it's certainly an important relationship to both both of them, and perhaps there are romantic overtones. I don't remember reading that strongly. Yeah, it's pretty subtle. It seemed pretty clear to me, though. Okay. Um, and I guess gendering that could be kind of interesting, certainly to the extent that Lecky is saying, okay, I know that all of you have been conditioned to read genders. You have been conditioned to read male as default. Like, Yeah, exactly. You're going to have to figure out this romantic relationship without really a whole lot of clues about gender. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's an interesting decision and point. But I, I have to admit, I don't know that I really gendered either of them. And that may have been a reason that I didn't particularly pick up on romantic, like the romantic elements of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's all, it's all very... Um, I think there, there are several romantic relationships in the book, or, or at least talking about talking about um, romantic relationships or talking about sex and it's all very i actually forget the word but they they use they use sort of other words to talk about it. it's all very indirect so it makes it a little bit hard to figure out which i'm sure is part of the point yeah i also probably kind of turned off actively thinking about what gender people were around the same time as you but in retrospect you know the gears kept turning mm-hmm. even even though i wasn't thinking about it directly so it's really tough which i think is part of the point yeah definitely Another thing that I found really interesting about it is that near the end of the book, when Breck and Sivarden make it into Ratch space, there are all of a sudden a lot of other signifiers. And so your status as civilian versus military, honored outsider versus citizen, I think even there are some distinctions between artificial and non-artificial, because of course one of the elements that's going on in Ancillary Justice that comes out more in S.W.O.R.D. is phasing out the ancillaries. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting to me that after spending 200 plus pages kind of training you to not look at pronouns and not looking at gender signifiers, Lucky has this whole other society with very rich and detailed signifiers of status that had nothing to do with gender. Clan affiliation also, I think, was really important. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and I I didn't really have exactly the same experience reading it as I think you did. I, I saw you, I either saw you tweet about that or I read your blog post and maybe you talked about it there, but it, it seemed like you felt like the phasing out the gender differences brought those other different differences and other signifiers into relief. For me, I mean, at least for me, reading the book at that point, those other signifiers seem kind of irrelevant to the story in a lot of ways. Like, uh, they were there, and Breck and Sivarden had to navigate them, but as far as the plot was concerned, I don't think that they really factored very much. Okay. So they were kind of interesting, but I didn't pay all that much attention to them. Interesting. We clearly... It's it's interesting to me the different things that we pulled out of the book. Um <laughs> Because so much of the what's going on with an AI, I I didn't really, I took AI as standing in for any sort of generic alien that had different ideas about body and, and didn't pick up on a lot of what was going on with possibilities of identity. Mm-hmm. Whereas the signifier stuff seemed really important to me and clearly not to you. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's also interesting that, that well, Breck's not great at the other signifiers, but she's certainly better at it than, better at the class signifiers, for example, than she is at the gender signifiers. Um, so she can read, when she encounters somebody, she can easily read all of the little indicators that they're wearing of what their, what their status and class and family history is. And she can't do that for gender. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels to me like part of what like he's getting at there is that the way that Breck is kind of wired was done in a particular way, probably by Manai. And I have a feeling that's going to probably factor in the, in the last book. We'll see. <laughs> that's interesting because my read is that Breck is wired that way because that's the culture that she was in. Well, who created the culture she was in? <laughs> Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I mean, Manai is, is certainly the controller of the Raj culture, but I hadn't read any intent by Manai, but much more just, okay, now we can see what Breck's culture was like and where, where the signifiers really were and, and what's important about a person. And mm-hmm. gender's yeah. way down on that list, and things like whether or not you're a member of the Ratch is really important on that list. Sure. Yeah, and I think, I think that's right. I mean, of course, there's a question of how you would how you would design an AI that you were um, that was supposed to be defending your empire. Would you make it pay attention to gender? Or would you make it pay attention to social status signifiers? Probably social status signifiers would be more important. Right. But I wonder if it also says something about Manai's kind of gender identification as gender not being important to her because she reproduces through cloning. Maybe Justice of Torn is a reflection of the way that Manai thinks about those types of things. Yeah. Two quick programming notes. In an upcoming episode, we're going to dive deep on Elysium, Jennifer Brissett's relatively new novel, which has already received a couple of awards. Fair warning now that there will be spoilers, so if that motivates you to read the book, go forth and do so. should have plenty of time, probably about a month. Also, I'm going to be rereading a bunch of Catherine Kurtz's Dearney novels and tweeting about them with hashtag Dearney on the podcast Twitter feed, which is at KingCabbageCast. If you enjoy such things, feel free to come follow along. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book. The right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. Okay, my book for this week is the first Catherine Kurtz Dearney novel that I ever encountered, The Quest for St. Camber, which is actually the third in the trilogy about King Kelson, but... When I found it at the Walker Library in Minneapolis, which you had to get to by going down a bunch of stairs or an elevator deep underground, uh, The Quest for St. Camber was the first book that I found there. It was a big hardcover, so it looked very impressive. There was a glowing blue figure with two people kneeling in front of it, one of them in a very fancy red robe. I totally judged the book by the cover and said, yes, yes, I need, need to read this. I went and read it and discovered what I suspect many people have discovered, that Kurtz was one of the first to do fairly closely historically inspired epic fantasy. We are talking here, I believe, early 70s was the original trilogy, so... Kurtz's books were definitely an early wave of fantasy. There's actually a recent article that I will link to by Carrie Sparing calling Kurtz one of the forgotten women of the early fantasy tradition, which I remember her and have gone through the series a few different times, but is apparently accurate. Um, It was great. I loved it. There were these people speaking Latin. There was a king and a half-brother and somebody up to no good, and 
wizardry based around symbols and signs and elaborate rituals and these cubes that you could touch and create magical spheres and people were rediscovering healing powers and there were saints. It was totally medieval. All of that is stuff that I love and adore. And I much later came to read things like Ursula Le Guin's essay from Elfland to Poughkeepsie, the thesis being essentially that Kurtz's language and the situations that the characters are in are relatively prosaic and closer to our world than the mystery and magic of fairyland. Um, and there are, there are, I think, many valid critiques to level against the Dearney novels, but I will always have a special place in my heart for uh, The Quest for St. Camber and, in general, Kurtz's Dearney novels. And I recommend them with some reservations, but certainly my emotional attachment to them is is strong and undying. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show, or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at J. Sutton Morse. The show is on Twitter at KingCabbageCast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.